Welcome to episode 25 of the Rock is George podcast. I'm your host, George Dion. The Rock is George podcast is rock music, whiskey, pop culture, and nostalgia, and we're ever evolving. You can stream the Rock is George podcast from your favorite podcasting app. Head over to anchor.fm slash rockisgeorge and make your selection. Or if you're a YouTube fan, head over to rockisgeorge.com, click the YouTube link, and enjoy. For episode 25, I have another great interview. I think all my interviews are great. This one is with Gerard Zappa. Gerard Zappa is the bassist for the late 80s, early 90s band Valentine. Valentine was made up of Gerard Zappa, vocalist Hugo Valenti, guitarist Adam Holland, keyboardist Craig Pullman, and drummer Neil Christopher. Here in 2021, they've just released a demo collection called Demos from the Attic. It's available through 20th Century Music and Vanity Music Group. It's a collection of songs that the band was working on before their 1989 debut. Fantastic album, by the way, their 1989 debut. I recommend checking it out on Spotify or Apple Music or anywhere that you could stream music. You can also head over to YouTube, check out their music videos from the late 80s. No Way is an excellent music video. It features pop culture icon Ali Sheedy. Of the Brat Pack, Short Circuit, St. Elmo's Fire. You remember all those things. <laughs> Getting back to Valentine, they were led by a very talented vocalist, Hugo Valenti. His voice was a gift. He had tremendous talent. The only problem was he looked and sounded a lot like Steve Perry of Journey. And in 1989, it was about the time that Steve Perry was kicking off his solo career. So it became a hindrance for the band. But don't worry, everybody's got a happy ending. Adam Holland, Craig Pullman, and Gerard Zappa, they currently play for the Steve Augieri Band. If you don't know who Steve Augieri is, he was the first vocalist to replace Steve Perry in Journey. So Valentine has this weird Journey intersection between Hugo Valenti's vocals and looks and where the band is today. Kind of strange, but Gerard's going to clear it all up. In the early 90s, the band kind of did a big 180 because they were having problems with their label, problems with their A&R guy at the labels, so they changed their name to Open Skies. Another great album that you should check out on all streaming music sites. I don't want to give too much away of Valentine's history because Gerard gives a great recap of how the band started the success of their 1989 album, the change-up in music styles and band names, and where everybody is today. It's a great story with a couple of interesting twists and turns. So with that, here's Gerard Zappa of the band Valentine. Today we're talking about Valentine's release, Demos from the Attic, through 20th Century Music. It's a collection of demos from 1989 to 1982, but I think we kind of have to start at the beginning before we get to where we're at today with Valentine. So Valentine formed in 1984, and you guys were kind of all high school buddies. Is that how it all came together? Yeah. Adam and I, uh, we met early on in high school, and we started playing around Long Island through some different formations of the band we ended up you know as valentine but um we had met uh our drummer neil 
and he and I played for a while with Adam. And then we, through Neil and a friend of Neil, we met Craig. Actually, it was through another friend of Neil, we met Hugo. Thus became Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys signed your first deal with Columbia Records in the early 80s. You Yeah, and that was uh, that was really special, particularly for Adam and I, because we had interned there while we were in college to come full circle and actually get a deal that was was pretty amazing for us and you know we were, we were really pumped <laughs> so the internship had an effect on you guys getting a record deal um you know i would say in yes in a couple of ways because we we learned a ton about the business and <clears throat> we also made some good contacts while we were there i met lewis levin who we knew a little bit through Libra Krebs. Adam kind of knew some of the guys at Libra Krebs. And Lewis used to come up every week. And he was working at the time with Aerosmith. And so we would do sales reports and what have you. And so we'd sit and chat and we got really friendly. After we first got signed with Armor Andon for a management deal with SBK at the time, they had a management division. Uh, SBK was known for like Wilson Phillips and um, I'm having a blank right now, Pump Up the Jam, you know, all these songs were happening at that time. <clears throat> but they started a management division and Omar Andon was managing us and he ended up getting us a lot of showcases for a lot of record companies. And in some of those, Lou would walk in and this and that. And Lou at the time was also working with Extreme and Armor and Extreme Armor uh, and Lou became partners on Extreme, and then they became partners on Valentine as well. Uh, Extreme was also signed with the same management company. And then we ended up doing a showcase for John Mervos that Lewis brought in, and then we got signed to Columbia. So, And it was ironic because Armor used to work at CBS also. So it all, you know, as much as it seems like, well, it was all who you know, it's still a struggle, man. I, I don't know if you've listened to Adam's uh, podcast, Band Forever. Uh, not yet. I saw that he had one. Okay. Yet. You'll be shocked at how many guys had the exact same story in the music business. Like everybody thought once you got signed, oh my God, that was it. And with us, it was Columbia. They were the biggest label on the planet. We got signed right after Warrant. And we were about to go into the studio just as Warrant hit with Heaven. And we would have been out and album released right after that. And it would have been like a beautiful, you know, get that Columbia machine going. And, you know, I, I think with Hugo's voice and our songs, it would have went really far. And then there was um, some political changes at the label. And this seems to be a common thread for a lot of musicians like us that had been signed, got a certain amount of success, but didn't break through like a Bon Jovi did or even a Warrant or, you know, and, and there's a lot of stories like that. So just to circle back, it's not just who you know, it's, it's talent first and foremost, but it's timing also. There's so much involved um, with timing. And I read an article recently that um, 
who was it that produced the first Van Halen record, Ted Templeman. And he wrote this whole article on Van Halen. Again, they were my favorite band growing up. You'd be shocked at how close they came to like imploding. We would have right. never even heard of Van Halen. It's crazy. Like the stories are crazy. So you guys didn't actually release your record through Columbia. You got moved over to Giant Records in 1990 to release your self-titled debut. Was that good thing or was that well, kind of a step back because it wasn't Columbia anymore? It, it was exactly what I was talking about. There was a change at the top. Donnie Einer came in as a new president of the label and he came from... Um, you know, like the Whitney Houston world. And at the time, Lewis, our manager, also managed Michael Bolton, who at the time was one of the biggest acts on the planet. And he was on Columbia. And Donnie, of course, loved him. That was right up his alley. And he was doing great. And it was out of respect to that relationship with Lewis that rather than just shelving our album, which a lot of bands in our era on Columbia would just, they would, just that was it. They were never getting released or promoted. They allowed us to get out of the contract and bring it over to Giant Warner Brothers, where our A&R guy, John Mervos, had gone. He left Columbia, went to Giant. So he really he wanted to bring us over there. And thank God, you know, Lou and Donnie were able to come to an agreement. And so we brought the album there. We were excited because it was an Irving Azoff, you know, company. He it was his label under Warner Brothers. <clears throat> so we were excited because, you know, we'd get the distribution and what have you with Warner Brothers. Irving Azoff is a legend. You know, we weren't going to have that Columbia machine, but we felt, okay, we're in good shape. But as fate would have it, for whatever reason, Giant didn't want to use the Warner Brothers promotion team they wanted it to, to do it on their own so what you had was basically a, a startup record label under a huge parent company but not using the resources of the parent company again we kind of got hurt by that and the politics of that you know instead of you having a radio promoter going hey um you got to add this song from valentine i'll give you the next you know, Madonna single that's coming out or the next Van Halen single, you know, you can name whoever was on Warners at the time. We just didn't have that juice because Giant didn't have that, those kinds of acts at that time. It was a new label. We had moderate success. You know, we were able to get a video done. Uh, we were able to, you know, we got some airplane MTV. We sold records in Japan and Europe, not so much in the States, you know, very moderate, moderate exposure in the States. What we did get out of it was some exposure with um, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, that movie, that was a, a giant soundtrack. So they were using giant acts for that. So we were able to record a new song for that. And they took our first uh, cut, Running on Luck Again. The upside of that is, you know, you're able to see your name at the end of a movie, to this day, it gets played on, you know, HBO, whatever. And we get, you know, small little royalty checks in the mail. I always have a kick with those because I would show my wife. I say, you see this check? <laughs> yeah. 
I go, now, if you multiplied that by like seven zeros, this is like what Elton John gets every month type of thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> I go, so believe me when I tell you, the music industry is a phenomenal way to make a living and get an annuity with publishing if you can break through and get a hit song. So, so that was interesting. And it, it was weird because we were accomplishing these goals the whole time, you know, i.e. getting a record deal, i.e., you know, working with a great producer. We worked with Neil Kernan on the first record, you know, getting on MTV, uh, getting a song in a movie. Um, at that time, we also wanted, um, I we were traveling a lot and I always wanted a song on on the airplane, you know, with, with the in-flight. And we ended up getting one of those, you know. So that was that era. It's so funny. I, I was just listening this morning to Adam's podcast that he did with John Levin. John is a good friend of ours who plays with Doc and he's a guitar player. He replaced George Lynch. And I remember him because his story was also similar before the Dawkins thing happened. And, I, and he said, Nirvana, he said, the day that first single came out for Nirvana, it was over for any kind of hair band or, you know, they're guitar players. They're like, anything we do was, was no good anymore. You can't, you can't even talk about guitar solos anymore. <laughs> so we ran into that. That was happening. It was just starting because we weren't really getting promotion at Giant, we had a long talk with our management and they told us, you know, our option was coming up where the label could either pick up the option for the band or you get out of the contract. He said, if we just lay low, they're going to just let us out of the contract. I know it. And it was, that was a scary decision for us. We had already had two record deals, which, you know, it's a unicorn just to get a record deal. That was a scary time for us as a band. We decided to roll the dice. We let the, 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 the deal run out. And we literally started from scratch all over again. That, that is where a lot of these songs from Demos from the Attic came because we went into a very heavy writing period. And, and some of those also came from before that as well. But that period particularly, we were still writing with our style of Valentine. And it was enough to get interest from RCA. Richie Zito came into RCA Records with his own label deal. It's gonna be Zito, Zito Records, I think it was called at the time. I don't remember, but it was RCA. And more importantly, it was the head of A&R that was signing us. And the president of the label, Joe Galante at the time, also gave his blessing. And we joked around about it because our band, we always had Italians and Jews in the band. And we did a showcase for Richie Zito is Italian, Joe Galante is Italian. And um, oh God, now I'm having a mental block. But the head of A&R was Italian. We went into SIR Studios, set up this whole showcase, and we bought cannolis. So at the end of the showcase, we started handing out cannolis. And it was fun. We had a really good time. Richie really loved the band, but more importantly, we sat down, oh, Rick Alberti, that's who it was, the head of A&R, we said, Rick, you know, we have been beat up twice already 
by changes at the label and politics and all this bullshit, do you promise you're not leaving the label? He's like, absolutely not. I'm not going anywhere. Blah, blah, blah. So we felt, first of all, we were grateful we were getting signed, but we were also really scared. <clears throat> sure enough, we get signed. We start going into pre-production and Rick Alberti leaves the label. <laughs> <laughs> and who comes in, but I can't remember his name right now, but his claim to fame was he had signed the Indigo Girls. So this guy, to say he had an ear for the kind of music we were doing would be like, you know, he didn't. And I and and it's it's not only that, but when you lose your A&R guy. So now we lost our A&R person three times. John Mervos twice and now Rick Alberti, the head of A&R. And when someone, an A&R guy inherits a band, they're not passionate about it. You know, they didn't help nurture it and you know and and your A&R guy is your cheerleader at the label right they're the ones that make sure marketing is involved and promotions involved and picking the songs and getting the right producer and you know they're they're your lifeblood at a, at a record label this guy came in and we got tortured for song choice he basically hated everything we had except a handful of songs so we went back into a major writing period and we started working with outside writers, everyone from Ricky Bird who played with Joan Jett to uh, Randy Jackson from Zebra to Glenn Burtnick. And it was actually a song we wrote with Glenn called Open Skies, which is how we got the name of the album. We were starting to get advice to possibly change the name of the band because this the grunge thing was just starting to come and and they just felt the whole 80s hairband thing was passe. Even though I never felt we were like a hairband, I felt, you know, with Hugo and his talent, we were always at a different level because his vocals were just so superior to so many guys out there uh, other than Steve Perry. We had a long talk about that. We decided we would do that, change the name, start fresh and with zito's talent zito's a tremendous producer he's got a ton of platinum records under his belt and hit songs he was a touring guitar player for elton john so he's a musician like he got it his vision and our vision where we wanted to go is basically to kind of mature almost you know and we really enjoyed the direction on almost the entire album, like his ideas, you know, we, we got to work with an amazing engineer, Rob Jacobs, who at the time had mixed all the Don Henley records. He did some like Eagles remixes, like live, live show mixes. And so between him and Zito, you know, we had guys like Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles come in and sing backups on some of the songs. It was like surreal. So again, now all of a sudden we're at another level. First of all, we're with RCA, which is, you know, Elvis, legendary. And, um, you know, we're in a studio doing great stuff. We rebounded mentally from the loss of our A&R guy, but better for worse, we were at a place that we were all pretty happy musically. And off of that, album we ended up releasing the first aor track uh every day of my life which 
was a song actually i want to say dave prater he had written it dave had produced firehouse albums and he did a radio mix on this song too and uh that song ended up becoming an aor top 20. so now all of a sudden we're on billboard magazine on the billboard charts another goal you know and we were feeling really good we got a, a tour uh with mr big backstory ironically steve ogieri who we adam and i play with now when he was with tall stories had the same tour with mr big he had like one half of it and we had the other <laughs> the, the the circles that keep coming around us are bizarre it's so incestuous it's unbelievable so um we did this great tour you know when we were in uh memphis we got to get a private tour of uh, Graceland because we were an RCA label like shit was really we were having a great time and things were finally like oh my god I mean you know this is for real like we'd be in Chicago and hear our song on the radio and we did this festival with Kiss and you know and our our tour guys had had worked with Kiss for years so out of all the bands on this festival we were the only ones that got the full sound and the full lights I mean, we got everything except the kiss sign when we went on stage, you know, and it was like we everything was just happening and it was, it, everything was clicking. Now it was time to release a song to try to capture some top 40 radio like Heaven did for Warrant, like More Than Words did for Extreme. And our song was the answer. We released it and it started getting traction at radio stations and then at P1s, which are the big stations in the country we were starting to get midwest action and what have you and then it was time we went to for star 99 in atlanta and if they were to add the song that would have been a catapult for then new york would have added like it would have the song would have absolutely taken off <clears throat> if they had added it and i was in my manager's office, Lewis, that day, and he had a call with the program director from Star 99. <clears throat> he put it on speaker. I'm in the office. And the guy goes, Lou, I, I can't end the song. And he's like, why? It's a great song. He goes, it's a great song. He goes, the guy sounds so much like Steve Perry. He goes, and I have Perry's single coming out again. Now, I don't remember at the time if this was the Street Talk record or he had another album he had put out. My heart just like sank. The reason was because Hugo is an anomaly. He's a freak of nature because not only does he have pipes like the greatest singer in rock and roll, I consider Steve Perry, but he looks like him. It's such a bizarre way it's so bizarre and his mannerisms are like you know and <laughs> i'll never forget when we first met hugo and i love hugo he's one of my dearest friend to this day i remember adam and i saying man you, I, I, I remember our drummer goes well you're gonna meet this guy hugo but listen don't be taken back he kind of looks like steve perry <laughs> i'm like what i'm like whatever i i like i couldn't even fathom that and sure enough, Hugo walks up the, the day we meet him and Adam and I are like, holy shit. And I'm like, dude, you know, people have told you you look like Perry, right? He's like, yeah, man, I get that. Right? And I go, well, 
listen, I don't know if that's a good thing. I mean, we're trying. I, I are you willing to do whatever it takes, man? Like, if you got to cut your hair or color it, or yeah, man, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, our whole career, Hugo's talent and voice brought us to this level, and then the similarity and appearance would knock us down a notch. Like our whole career would happen where it was like two steps forward, one step back. So it was a double-edged sword for us, truly. But we were always on the positive side of that. So, and that day with that phone call, that was an nail in the coffin. That was the really, truly the only time that his vocal sound and hurt us. That was it. And it was a massive one, but so be it. You know, I say for sure we would have the hit and everything. I mean, who knows? But it was just, it was just so weird that that happened. That was it. And right around that time, like we said, you know, the grunge had already taken over. And we as a band got really deflated. We at that point had been together as a unit for 10 years, struggling, writing, moving to LA, moving back three record deals and the emotional roller coaster of that you have to understand when you're in a band and we were a band i mean like it wasn't like a solo artist like we all depended on each other it's like having four wives because first of all you love each other but your passion is the same but all of a sudden your entire career and finances are also dependent on each other and what's going to happen out of this and to keep four wives together for 10 years through all those ups and downs it was like it's unbelievable listen i love bands like you two that have been together since they were children and they never even thought of doing a solo record but they've also had tremendous success financially and obviously and if we had I know for a fact we would still be together playing because we kind of are even now at that point though we had to take a breather that was it for valentine for open skies and we all kind of went our own way i don't think any of us really were playing music for a few years we were all friends still you know and I'm so sorry. I'm like just rambling. I don't know if you wanted to be asking questions. I'm giving, I'm just giving you our <laughs> no, these, are the, these are the best interviews. I ask one question and you answer every question. <laughs> you got it one. easy. <laughs> so an interesting thing happened. We, um, so we were all kind of doing regular jobs and whatever. And I was getting married and I told the guys, I want to play at my wedding. I want the band to play. They really couldn't say no because it was kind of like my wedding gift. You know what I mean? So, but I didn't have to bully them. They, everyone was like, oh yeah, man. Okay, cool. That'd be great. So we hadn't played in at least six years. Had to be something like that. And we, I set up a rehearsal the night before. Cause I, you know, I wanted to sound good. It was my wedding. And we had a blast that night, man. It was it was like my bachelor party. It was just the band rehearsal. It was the greatest thing. And it was magic, man. It was like, it was like, holy shit. Like, it was just magical, right? To be 
all back in the same room together. And um, <clears throat> we made it fun. I had some other friends join us. We jammed. So the wedding was a blast. Everyone said it was like a concert. It was so much fun. And that felt great. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone's kind of feeling itchy about music again. And Adam had started writing with some guys down in Nashville. After that, Craig joined um, a hard tribute band. After that, Hugo put together a journey tribute band and um, that I ended up managing called Evolution. He asked Adam to join. So now Adam's playing with Hugo and I was managing that band and Craig was playing in a heart cover band. I was managing that band. Everyone's kind of having fun. We're all, you know, we're all, at least we get to hang out now. We have a blast and it was great. And then we get a call from a promoter in England for a festival called Firefest. And he said, man, we would love to have Valentine come and play this. You know, we've, there's a lot of fans here that really want to see you guys. And we were like, so I asked the guys, I'm like, you guys want to do this? And they're like, wow, man, that's a, you know, I was like, you know, it's a free trip to England and you know, whatever. And everyone's like, yeah, man, fine, let's do it. <clears throat> so we go over. We had no idea really what to expect. And when we got on stage, it, you would have thought the fucking Beatles came out. It was, it was so surreal. Mind you, we hadn't been in front of an audience like that in God knows how long, 10 years at least, more. And they were singing every word to every Valentine. We only played Valentine. We might have played some, some of the Open Sky stuff. But man, they were singing and it was like, Oh my God, it was like magic. And halfway through the show, <laughs> Hugo goes, I think we need to do a new, a new album. And the crowd goes bananas. And I look over, I'm standing near Craig. I like, did he just say that on stage in public? <laughs> like, yes. And I was like, all right. Anyway, we had a blast, man. We got off stage. We were like signing autographs for like three hours. And the best part is all our wives were there. They had never seen us really play as a band, like the true like Valentine show. And like they were like they knew we were musicians and whatever. And it, they were it was like mind blowing for everybody. They were like, wow, you guys are like for real. And we're like, yeah, well, and we had never got to tour Europe. So it was a big deal for us to do that show. So we end up going home and we record Soul Salvation which some of the songs on Soul Salvation were also from that demo collection that would have been the second Valentine album. So we really wanted to kind of go back to the roots, the Valentine sound. And so I had set up a studio in my house. I ended up producing the record, which was a blast. And thank God my wife at the time, she was so great. She could sleep through anything. Hugo would be ripping vocals at, you know, 1 a.m. And she could kill us, you know, and Adam was ripping guitar. And so we had a, we had a, it was, we had a great time recording it. Um, I brought in a friend of ours, Vinnie Kowalski, to mix it. He's since passed away. He was Peter Frampton's sound guy for years. And we released the album ourselves and the way we did it was at another fire fest festival so we went back the year after and that was kind of a, a bit of a record release and blah 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 
and it was great. And then off of that, we end. Oh, and at that show, Steve Ogieri was on the gig also with Tall Stories. So afterwards, we're all hanging out up in the, you know, in the bar and, you know, he's a New York guy, we're all New York guys. And, you know, so we're really getting friendly. And, and Hugo and Steve actually had a really great respect for each other, um, even back then. And you could just tell when they hung out, they would like, first of all, they, they have such similar personalities. They're both so humble and gentle and, you know, great guys. And I'll circle back to tell you why that was important. So we end up doing that show. And after that, we got invited to Belgium to do another festival. And it was amazing. And uh, David Byrne from the Talking Heads was on that gig. We ended up having dinner with David Byrne and Donna Summer. <laughs> and Los Lobos was there. And it was, it was a crazy, huge festival. <clears throat> so things were great. I mean, we're having fun as Valentine. We're doing all this stuff. And Hugo really, he, it was hard for him to really travel or commit to that at that time. He was running his own business, but he loved doing his journey tribute thing. And he was like, you know, man, I really, I'd, I'd rather just kind of do what I'm doing rather than try to, it, it would have been hard to truly resurrect Valentine. Um, and so we were like, you know what, let's just leave it as it is. Like if things come up and we have fun, you know, we'll do it. But as a band, we were really itching to keep playing something. And so let's circle back. So Hugo called me at, I forgot what year it was. And he said, John Kaladner called me. Now, John Kaladner is known as the rabbi. He re resurrected the careers of like Aerosmith. He's the guy in the dude looks like a lady video. He's the guy at the end looks like a chick but he's got a beard <laughs> that's Kalad. we had showcased for him and he remembered hugo and he said get out your journey records because we're going to get you an audition with journey steve perry's leaving the band and hugo called me and we got lewis involved and i'm like you know what bro this is serendipity because it if we couldn't do it as us then you should fucking be in that band because it'll validate everything we put into this and the talent we knew you always had and like you know it was going to be magical right so he's getting ready he's practicing and then neil sean sees a photo of him and decides he's not going to audition he said it was like seeing a ghost and sean and perry obviously didn't have a great breakup and um so hugo never even got the audition you know Again, not to say he would have got it over Ogiri, but he didn't even get to show up and do his thing. This guy, Steve Ogiri, gets the gig. And again, at that time, we'd only known Ogiri from, we knew he was on our label and told stories, you know. And I got to be honest with you, for me personally, I did not follow Journey at all at that time because to me, they were my nemesis as far as, my own career and competition, you know, and I totally respect the guys. I just, at that time, and I was like a Van Halen fan. I just kept, I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to pretend journey doesn't exist right? <laughs> for a while going through my career. But that's why when Hugo had called me, I'm like, dude, you've got to get that gig, man. It would be fucking. And, and I'm sitting here going, first of all, if you're a journey fanatic 
and you're sitting second row back, you wouldn't even know it's not Perry. He could have gotten the band and they actually probably didn't even have to say shit. And no one would have even known. They would have been like, wow, he must be taking vitamins, man. He looks younger, you know? So anyway, long story short, Ogier gets the gig, blah, blah, blah. So now years go by and now, now it's years later, like I said, and now Ogier is out of Journey. He was back doing the Tall Stories thing. He he was in Taiketo also. I, I don't remember his chronology, but I'm like, man, he's such a great guy. You know, he's so nice. And Hugo's like, I told you, man, the guy's a nice guy. He's an amazing talent. And I'm like, all right, because I have a, I'm, I've always been a competitor my whole life. So anything that hurts any of my friends, he's like, no, man, are you crazy? The guy's a sweetheart. He, he deserved that gig and he did amazing. I was like, cool. So when we were hanging out. We all became, you know, good friends. And then when we got back, I was working, my partner in the management company, we got a call for the Journey Tribute to do an opening night party for Rock of Ages, big Broadway show, and it was the opening night. And they needed entertainment. And Mark and I ended up putting, we did the entire production for this opening night party. So we had Evolution, we had to put a band together for Jim Peterick from Survivor. And I was like, you know, man, if playing Eye of the Tiger, I was a huge Rocky fan. I said, fuck it, I'm putting myself in that band. <laughs> so I played and I got Robbie Hoffman, a good friend of ours, to play guitar for that because we didn't want to have the Evolution Band doing both sets. And um, so we had a blast that night. The producers asked Mark and I if we could start doing like a, like a monthly cast party. So we put this together every month where the cast would come over next door to the China club and we'd have a different band in town. And if any nationals were coming through, they would come in and <clears throat> sit in whatever. So the first night of that, we had twisted sister there. Then guys from extreme were coming through town. Like this went on for a while, but that first night I, we reached out to Steve O'Jerry. Hey man, do you want to come down? Yeah, man. Sure. And he ended up going on stage with Hugo and they did a couple of verses. I forgot what song, probably Don't Stop Believing or something. And afterwards, we're talking to Steve, like, man, what are you doing? He's like, man, I'm trying to get a band together. Really? I'm like, we're a band. <laughs> you know, Valentine. And Hugo really, he's like, what about Hugo? I go, he, he really doesn't want to do, you know, too much of this stuff. But man, we, we'd love to be your band. We'd love to play with you. Plus, I had a recording studio, like we could do a bunch of stuff and we were like managing. And so we started seriously talking about it. And before he said yes, he said, first, I, I need to call Hugo and make sure it's OK, because you're his guys. I said, dude, that is that's like, you know, when you ask the father to marry his daughter, I was like, this guy's got so much class. It's friggin unbelievable. And it calls Hugo, and of course, Hugo had no problem. He was happy. He was like, yeah, of course, man, that's great. So for us, it was a great treat to love and play with Steve because this guy's, you know, he's a legacy, man. This guy was in Journey. And so for me, Adam and Craig, now it wasn't a tribute thing. It was like a real band. We were doing, you know, new solo stuff with Steve. And Robbie our good friend ended up taking Adam's place in evolution. He still plays with Hugo to this day, it's voyage. And I am literally, what time is it now? 11 AM. I'm supposed to meet Hugo for drinks tonight. I'm on long Island. I haven't been here in a while. 
Craig may come out and, you know, so we're all still tremendous friends. And again, this journey incestuous thing just keeps going around and around. And this is why I can tell you wholeheartedly how much I respect journey. For me personally, it was the first time having to learn journey music <clears throat> playing with Steve. And I got to tell you, the songwriting is so incredible. It, it, it's one thing, you know, you, you listen to music, you're a fan, but when you dig into it and you're learning this and you're listening to the production and their ideas and their harmonies and melt, it, that friggin' band deserves everything they've ever gotten and will still get. It tells me what a great, great talent Ojiri was and the fucking Arrival album he did. To this day, a song will come on and I'll text him like, do you know how fucking good you sound on this song? He's like, thank you, man. You know, he's so humble, man. And, you know, Hugo to Belova have this talent that he does it. You know, I call it vocal acrobatics. Guys that can sing like that. And it's amazing at how humble they are about it. And they're, they're soft-spoken. They're true gentlemen, I call them. Like, truly gentlemen, but gentle. I just get so much respect for these guys and what they do. Listen, man, we're out doing gigs now in our, at our age. And Adam and I, like, some of the, these venues we do are better than we did back in the day. And we've done huge festivals with Steve. We've played with Ario Speedwagon, the guests who, uh, you know, you name it. Like, it's been amazing. And Hugo's been doing unbelievable with his stuff. And <clears throat> we got a call from this guy from 20th Century Music saying, hey, do you guys happen to have any unreleased demos? We'd love to put it, you know, do a release, a, a Valentine release of demos. You know, maybe I'm like, let me call the guys. So I called Hugo. I called, and everyone's like, all of us, <laughs> like, as long as we don't have to record anything, no problem. You could take, you know, we're not going back into the studio and doing that whole commitment again, right? <clears throat> we all dug into our vaults, literally. And um, we found a lot of these demos <clears throat> that for us, Santa great. I mean, I live listen to Live Nation all um Hair Nation all the time on Sirius. And there are some songs, man, on these demos. I'm like, this shit sounds pretty cool, man. Like it, it's 80s rock. It's what the second Valentine record would have been. I went through everything and with the guys and said, I don't want to put anything on this album that's been released. So we had done some, obviously, some made the records. We had done a bunch on Soul Salvation. Hugo had done a few over the years on his solo records. So we were careful to try to find songs that have never been out there. And that's how we got this collection together. I was able to find a guy in where I live now in Ohio to do some uh, remastering on some of the stuff that I had on DAT. For all those that don't know, digital audio tape, those little mini cassettes. Um, it was funny. I was listening to John Levin today. He's like, so I... I Burned the CD for Don Doc and a listener. And I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, like this shit doesn't even happen anymore. What's a CD, right? <laughs> but um, so we did that. And these guys at 20th Century have been great. They did the whole packaging and they've got it out there. I know Adam's been doing a lot of podcasts like this to help promote the record. Um, you know, we think if you're a Valentine fan, you're gonna really enjoy it. I, Adam is doing some tremendous guitar playing on these songs. 
Hugo is singing lights out like crazy good. Um, you know, we wish the quality could be better, but it is what it is. They're demos and from years ago, analog tape, it was, you know, nothing was digital back then. We had a little reel to reel and uh, eight track. We're happy. We're still, we're proud of it. Anything we have our name on, you know, we're, 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 we're proud of. And, you know, hopefully our fans dig it and respect the whole backstory and where all this came from and, you know, all the trials and tribulations we've been through and the full circle cosmic journey connection, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I have to thank Neil Sean and Steve Perry for ever writing and stuff. It's still allowing a lot of us to gig and play and have fun. And, you know, and uh, I thank Steve every time when we're, at shows for having such a great career that allows us to do these things we're doing today. We always express gratitude. It's the one thing we do. You, you, if you've ever been in a working environment with either Steve or Hugo, you will see how amazingly polite and kind and considerate they are to not only fans, but crew guys, like anyone around them. And we've always modeled ourselves that way as, as our band, Valentine. And with Steve now, we, you know, we're representing him. So it's even more important. And he, he's just such a pleasure to work with. And all these guys are. And it's been a, a family love affair for many, many years. Adam and I, for me, Adam, it's been the longest since we were like 14. You know, we're in our mid-50s now. So that tells you how long we've been together and playing and uh you know these guys i call them my best friends i mean they still are and and this was the whole meaning also i think of adam's podcast band forever because that's what it is you're like it's something in you and if you've been lucky enough to have a band of brothers it's an amazing thing what are the chances of another valentine show at like a festival in europe the chances of that i think would be great if it was the right situation, <clears throat> we got invited, um, you know, who knows? I mean, it could be something like whether it's just Valentine on a bill with some of these guys, or let's say it's a festival where Steve also got invited with, you know, tall stories or something, and then we're all there. And then it could be another show, another day, doing something with him also we would we would love it and I, I think hugo would absolutely love to do it if it was the right thing all right man uh that's all i got for you today gerard uh, the new album is demos from the attic uh it sounds great even for demos i think and i really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to come on the rock is george podcast love it man thank you so much for having me man i want to once again thank Gerard Zappa for coming on the Rock is George podcast. Now, Valentine doesn't really have an online presence at this time, but you can head over to Facebook and check out the Adam Holland fans page. Adam also has a great podcast on all streaming podcasting apps called Band Forever. You can also head over to Vanity Music Group to purchase their new album, Demos from the Attic. I want to thank... Dave Tedder of Vanity Music Group for making this interview possible. Head over to vanitymusicgroup.bigcartel.com and check out their selection of great lost 80s 
and early 90s rock bands. You've been great. I've been George Dion. I'll see you again soon.